Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm very excited to have two guests today, Simran Malhotra, who's a physician, a palliative care physician, and Carla Parazio, who is an advanced practice nurse working in palliative care. Welcome, ladies. I'm delighted you're with us today. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for having us. Oh, for sure. So why don't we start off with uh, either of you jump in. Please share your story, who you are, what you do. What's the 411? Um, all right, I can go first. So my name is Simran Maholtra. I live in Maryland with my husband, my two kids. Um, I'm originally from outside Toronto, Canada. I moved down here in 2012 for my internal medicine residency, uh, which I, after I finished, I went to Hopkins for a year to do my hospice and palliative care fellowship. Um, and I finished that in 2016. And since then, I've been working as an inpatient palliative care um, clinician. Um, however, I've also had my own personal health journey over the past four to five years that's kind of opened my eyes to some other interests. So I'll share a little bit about that as well. Um, so personally, I have a, a very strong family history of breast cancer. Um, my mom in particular had breast cancer at 33 and again at 49. And we later found out that her and I actually share a genetic mutation known as BRCA1, which increases our lifetime risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, so I found out I had the mutation when I was 25. And at that time, I frantically started researching. You know, I knew there was preventative surgeries, but other than that, what else can I do to decrease my risk of, of cancer? Um, and so... And, and uh, everything I'm about to say, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm going to talk about lifestyle habits, but I'm not saying that just those alone are going to eliminate my risk of cancer. I am getting the preventative surgeries, but, you know, there's something that gives you back a lot of control in your life. Um, and one of the first stories I read that actually had a huge impact on me as a person, but also as a, as a palliative care doctor um, came from a book uh, by Dr. Michael Greger um, called How Not to Die. So it's the first book on evidence-based nutrition that I read um, on my journey. And he shares in the first chapter about uh, his grandmother's story. So at 65, she was diagnosed with end-stage coronary artery disease, and she basically was sent home with hospice care, something that we're all very familiar with. And after she got home, she actually enrolled in an intensive lifestyle medicine program um, on the West Coast. And she actually ended up completely reversing her heart disease and ended up going on to live another 30 fruitful years and died in her 90s. So as a palliative care doctor, to me, that was really hard to wrap my head around um, because it's something I'd never seen clinically. It's something I'd never heard about, um, nothing I was taught about in medical school. Um, and so over the last four to five years, I, I think I, I've learned a lot about the impact of positive lifestyle habits and behavior change. Um, and it's, it's been incredibly powerful, not just for myself, but for a lot of my family and friends. And that's kind of where Carly and I connect a lot. Um, but also for a lot of my patients who suffer from, you know, these chronic illnesses. Um, so I, on the side, I just finished, I love to cook, um, Lynn knows that, I love to cook, so I just finished my culinary coaching certification, so I'm hoping to use that to empower patients and families, probably more so families, to help cook um, healthier meals at home for patients, which can, um, you know, be good for their quality of life. 
Um, and then I'll be taking the lifestyle medicine board exam coming up in November along with Carly. Um, and so she'll share her story, but ultimately we're hoping to merge our passion for cooking, lifestyle medicine and palliative medicine to kind of provide a comprehensive approach to patients with serious illness to improve quality of life. Well, I think you'll be very happy to hear. I believe I heard that our School of Medicine actually has a kitchen in the School of Medicine to teach lifestyle medicine. Isn't oh, that very cool. cool. Yeah. So like they're doing culinary medicine teaching? I, that's what I heard, I believe, yes. So that is really neat. There's really not that many med schools with uh, culinary kitchens, so that's pretty awesome. The yeah. University of Maryland has an integrative medicine program, I believe, so I wonder if they're using that as a part of that program. Perhaps. Yeah, it's possible. So Carly, what's your story? Yep, so I'm Carly Prazio. I am a nurse practitioner. Um, I, I got my nursing degree in 2008. I finished nursing school, um, went out and worked at the bedside for um, five, six years until I completed my nurse practitioner um, degree from the University of Maryland. My initial certification is in geriatrics and adults. Um, and then after a couple of years, when I met one of our mentors and he asked me to uh, join the team, I went back and got my subspecialty certification in um, palliative care as an advanced practice palliative nurse. So um, for the past, si uh, let's see, six years, I've done palliative care in an inpatient, inpatient consult setting. Simran and I crossed paths in 2016 when I was asked to cover her for maternity leave, and then I just never left the hospital that she worked at. <laughs> um, they said, do you wanna stay? I said, sure, why not? And uh, that's kind of how our professional relationship and friendship really began. Um, my interest in lifestyle medicine and nutrition um, came in part because I also have a strong family history of breast cancer, um, but I do not have any known gene linkages. Um, so it, it almost creates its own it's different type of anxiety because it's almost like you feel so strongly that you're, you're destined to have this disease, but you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to happen. You just know that you have a really strong risk. Um, and in, through my experience in palliative care, seeing very, very sick patients, you know, in the earlier part of my career, it was mostly cardiac patients, diabetes. But when I came to my current hospital where we have a huge cancer center and I was starting to see people my age with very advanced cancers, I developed a lot of anxiety around that, particularly after I became a mom. I have two young boys, um, I'm married. Um, and at, at that point, after I had my first son, my own mortality became very real. You know, before it's not something I ever really thought about. Um, but after I had children, I, it was always in my mind, oh my goodness, I can't leave my young family behind. So I started to become more interested in the things I could control to improve my own health um, and my risk of disease. Hmm. So that's kind of how I initially became interested. And then in working so closely with Simran and seeing the food she was bringing to work, because she was vegetarian, um, probably, I think when we met, she was vegetarian. So I never saw her eat meat. And then during her second pregnancy, she became vegan and it was very intriguing. And I would see the things she was eating. I would hear the different tidbits of knowledge she was sharing. And it's something that definitely piqued my interest. Um, so after my second son was born, a um, couple months after, 
I made the decision to go plant-based, mainly for health reasons. And as I dove more and more into plant-based eating and knowledge and um, how our foods are sourced, it, it became clear to me that for ethical and animal welfare reasons, it just seemed to make sense for me and our family. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now. Um, uh, as Simran said, where I'm getting my lifestyle medicine certification in November, um, we're taking the test at the same time. My other professional goals for 2021 would be uh, culinary medicine as well, but I also really um, have wanted to become a yoga teacher for a long time. So that's something I'm hoping to incorporate with our patients and families as a form of stress release, um, physical exercise, and mindfulness. So good things to come. Lofty goals. So you're both yeah. throwing around this term lifestyle medicine. Can one of you define this for me? What is this? What are you referring to? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so lifestyle med, there's actually a college for this known as the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, and it's basically an evidence-based approach to preventing, treating, and potentially even reversing chronic disease by replacing unhealthy habits with healthy ones. So it seems pretty common sense knowledge, um, things that we should all be doing. Um, but unfortunately, I think, you know, the way that conventional medicine works for most of our chronic diseases, things like heart disease and cholesterol and blood pressure, the first step is always, the primary prevention is always for lifestyle change. However, in medical school and residency, we're really not taught about how to actually empower patients and actually how to teach them to do these things. And so lifestyle medicine is a whole college just focused on that. And so now it's, it's a very rapidly growing movement. There's a lot of people gaining interest in it because as we know, especially as palliative care clinicians, people get medications and they get surgeries and they get all sorts of things, yet they continue to get sicker with time. So the question is, what are we doing wrong? And lifestyle medicine seems to be one of the answers to that. And there's six big pillars um, to lifestyle medicine. So the number one and probably the most important is eating a healthful diet. Um, and in lifestyle medicine, they usually recommend predominantly a whole food plant-based diet. And we can talk a little bit more about that in a little while. Um, number two is, is moving, um, not necessarily following a strict exercise regimen, but just increasing forms of physical movement. Number three is developing strategies to manage stress, which is something that we're you know, stress, stress is something that we're all very familiar with, um, improving uh, sleep, and then forming and maintaining healthy relationships, which we know in the palliative care population is extremely important. Patients that have, you know, family and loved ones around them do much better. And then the last one is avoiding risky substances. So I think similar to palliative care, lifestyle um, medicine interventions can be used alongside conventional life-prolonging treatments and can be used for prevention as well as treatment of chronic disease. Um, and you know, as we all know, the, the WHO definition of palliative care, what is it? It's, it's an approach um, that improves the quality of life of patients and their families facing a problem associated with life-threatening illness, right? But when most of us think about life-threatening illness, we're thinking stage four cancer, we're thinking end-stage heart failure, but it, it, I think what we really need, especially in this country, is we need to shift our mindset on, on what um, serious illness means because of the current epidemic of chronic illness in this country. And what I mean by that is 
high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, these are all of the silent killers that over a number of years are what lead to the serious illnesses that we eventually see in our patients. And so I think, as I was saying earlier, you know, much of conventional medicine or traditional medicine focuses on managing you know, symptoms, focuses on managing disease rather than going after the root cause of the disease, which for most, for the top 10, or at least the top three, um, you know, causes of death in America, which are heart disease, stroke, and cancer, 80% of those are caused by, are caused by um, bad lifestyle habits. Um, so having said that, I think as palliative care clinicians, um, if we see patients at the time of diagnosis, which I know is hardly ever happens because we're consulted so late, um, we can educate them about these lifestyle factors and give them a chance at treating, potentially reversing. But if none of that happens, at the very least, these lifestyle factors can at least improve their quality of life, which is what we are all about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so part of, and, and we can talk about this you know, at the, later on, but part of the struggle for us is as inpatient clinicians, we often don't see our patients until the last hours, days, or weeks of life, um, especially recently with COVID. So it's really hard to practice um, you know, lifestyle medicine in the inpatient palliative care setting. So I'm curious, you know, you talked about the first pillar being eating better, better nutrition. It just seems to me that if someone has a serious or an advanced illness, that seems like a hard sell to me. I mean, if I was circling the drain, I don't think I'd want to hear about walking the straight and narrow. I would want to go on a steady diet of Twinkies, I think, as solace. So how do you sell that? And does it really make any impact? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have a good point there. Um, and that's where I just, like I just said, I think because people still think palliative care and hospice are the same thing, when we are consulted in the inpatient setting, it's usually for end of life care. Mm-hmm. And so I think lifestyle interventions in that setting, just like chemotherapy, just like the next cardiac procedure, just like everything else, you have to weigh the risks and the benefits, you know, put it in the context of the patient's prognosis and their overall goals of care. Mm-hmm. This is certainly not something that is going to help every single patient. But I think what you know, our little hearts are really hopeful for is that as we kind of pave this path, we can educate people about earlier palliative care consultations at the time of diagnosis of that stage two or three cancer where they're still getting aggressive treatment, where we can, you know, they're still functional enough to do these lifestyle interventions that along with conventional medicine in synergy is going to give them better long-term results. I don't think, you know, everything that we're talking about is for the patient at the very end of life. Um, I think we're really talking about people who are diagnosed with a serious illness, who are still functional, who are still eating, who are still drinking. Um, And that's where I think our struggle comes also in our career, because Mm -hmm. we're so passionate about this. But the patients that by the time we get consulted, like we really can't share this education with them because it's it's a little too late. a, a, a fair amount of patients, um, you know, young cancer patients, basically begging. They're saying, "What can I do differently to improve my survival? You know, what can I do now?" And even at the very end stages, and I, I'm thinking about a patient that Simran and I saw together. Um, I, I don't even remember it was. It was in within the last year and a half, and she had a very advanced form of colon cancer with four young kids, a husband at home 
saying she was circling the drain, as you say, she was really, really sick saying anything, tell me anything I could do to just be here a little bit longer. And so diet was actually something we talked to her about. Um, whether she went home and made those changes or read the books we suggested, I'm not sure. Um, she did pass um, after, shortly after we saw her. But even at death's door, patients are still saying, what can I do now to have even the smallest fighting chance? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think there is cause for hope. I know that MedStar has really worked hard to establish a presence in the outpatient palliative care environment as well as telehealth. So uh, I, I do hope, I, I've always thought that that was the missing link in palliative care. We have, as you said, inpatient palliative care, particularly close to the end, we have hospice care, but the missing link has been providing supportive care for people upstream. So hopefully we will continue to evolve there. So let's talk about that second pillar. What is the role of physical exercise in the palliative care population? Yeah, so um, physical exercise is super important. Um, you know, you hear all the time on the news and the magazines, exercise, exercise, you know, get X amount of minutes or hours a week. And it's very important, but as you well know, a lot of our patients are just not able to physically do it, either because of poor mobility, debilitating symptoms, you know, fatigue, whatever the reason. But I still think that there you know, are some ways, we, we just need to get creative to get people moving. Um, many of our patients are, as I said, far too sick to follow a strict exercise regimen. But if we could work on the first pillar, which is nutrition, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, um, you know, can we get them feeling a little better, um, less fatigue, weight loss, which would maybe improve their mobility? Can we get them a little bit better to be able to move more? Um, and making these baby steps over time adds up to a big result. Um, you don't have to do a regiment, regimented exercise routine and get benefits. In fact, I myself am not on a strict regimented routine because I have two young kids and I just don't have time. So I do a 10 minute video here, a 20 minute video there. I park farther away and I speed walk into the hospital. I take the steps. So, you know, you don't have to have access to a gym. Um, you know, some of the barriers a lot of our patients face, whether it's financial, physical, you know, getting out of the house, whatever, I think we can get creative. Even if it's sitting in the chair doing arm weights or, um, you know, we tell people to do their incentive spirometer every time a commercial comes on, take 10 breaths. Well, how about every time a commercial comes on, we do leg lifts, you know, pick our legs up off the, the sofa or reach our arms up and down like this, just anything to get the body moving. Mm -hmm. um, even chair yoga, there's so many different forms of exercise that our seriously ill patients can engage in to really improve their function, their pain, um, and hopefully their quality of life. Um, we know that patients, for instance, with severe osteoporosis, you know, bad knee pain, bad back pain, they can't move because they're in so much pain. But, you know, it, it's interesting because if they move more, their pain might actually improve. So it's finding that sweet spot um, between the barriers and making it happen. You know, eventually we can get them moving more to improve their quality of life. Um, similar to physical benefits of exercise, there, we've all heard there's mental benefits to exercise, so stress relief. Um, there was actually a study, it's an old study, but um, at, uh, 1999 out of Duke, 
where they looked at 156 older adults with major depression and they um, separated them. So one group participated in group exercise, the other group received sertraline. Um, by 16 weeks, both interventions were proven effective. So the question was, was it the group exercise being amongst peers or was it the exercise itself that made the difference? Um, so they, then they tested individual exercise. 30% um, perceived improvement at 80 minutes a week, 47% perceived improvement at 180 minutes a week. Um, and no difference between three days of exercise versus five days of exercise. So it, it actually doesn't take much to get even a little bit of benefit. So if we're not going for the physical benefit of exercise, it can have a huge benefit for depression, stress, anxiety. Um, and as we know, our serious, seriously ill patients have a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Most of them have comorbid depression. So can we do something to improve that in any way? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a very impressive goal. I, I think that's very laudable. So let's turn our attention to something I think we could all use help with, which is stress management. How are you going to handle that, ladies? I mean, I think stress is unavoidable um, for everyone, right? We, all three of us here have it. Everyone listening probably has it. Um, our particular fragile patient population um, that is dealing with serious illness especially has it, especially as they're trying to navigate treatment, they're trying to navigate their prognosis and the healthcare system. Um, but I, I think interestingly, how we think about stress and how we manage stress has the ability to either make us sicker or make us feel better. Um, and the reason I say that because it's not the actual stress that's killing us, it's the way that we react to it. Um, so that comes back to Carly's point about, you know, doing something to relieve the stress. Exercise is one form. But what we know about chronic stress is that it leads to chronic inflammation, which is a cornerstone of, of chronic disease. And so I think this stress can, particularly for our patients, can lead to worsening symptoms of pain, insomnia, anxiety. And so it comes down to very simple physiology, right? Are you activating your parasympathetic system? Or are, you, are you activating your fight or flight response chronically? Um, and I, I think that's really important to think about because there's so many adverse effects from chronic activation of your sympathetic um, nervous system. And just, just to name a few, particularly for our patients, um, you know, things like decreasing bone density, muscle mass, cognitive impairment, insomnia, um, slower wound healing, lowering immunity. We don't think about these things, but that's what chronic stress causes. And so in our particular palliative care population, that's going to lead towards outcomes in, a, in someone that's already very fragile. Um, and so I think it's something that we don't talk enough about with our patients and empowering them with very simple self-care techniques is a very powerful way to combat this stress, um, which will make them feel better, improve their outcomes, and improve their quality of life. And, and there's a lot of evidence behind it. That's the thing. So simple, and, and, and there's so many different forms of relaxation techniques. The most common that everyone talks about, hears about these days is meditation and mindfulness. Um, you know, they did it, there was a randomized controlled trial um, 
that documented the benefits of meditation in young breast cancer survivors. And all these women reported improvements in depressive symptoms, stress, and fatigue. And so there's a lot of simple techniques, moving, meditating, journaling, um, even things, there's been evidence behind things like um, journaling, things that you're grateful for, right? Um, making time to laugh, watching comedy, um, all of these things can have a very powerful impact, but it's not, they're not things that we talk enough about. Um, and they're things that don't cost money, so anybody can do them. Um, and before COVID, it's something, you know, when I was at the same hospital as Carly, it's something that I frequently did with my younger cancer patients is at the end of our um, encounter, we would do a three to five minute meditation, especially for patients that were anxious or having pain. Um, and they almost always reported that they felt better right after. Yeah, I think I was gonna ask you that is, I've often heard that even meditating for five minutes can be beneficial. And that when you really get in the groove of getting used to doing this, when you encounter a stressful situation, you can get back in that zone very quickly. Is that true? It's very much true. And it's, it's the thing is, is that you can start with five minutes. And if you're consistent with that, over time is where you get the benefit. So it's not necessarily that you do one hour, you know, once every two months, even five minutes a day, or even three minutes a day, but if you're consistent with it, it'll give you a much more powerful benefit. And the way you got to think about it is, you know, your, mus your brain is a muscle just like your biceps. So, you know, stress um, combating techniques like meditation, mindfulness, exercise, these are all things that make our brain more resilient. And so when you're in a stressful situation, you're able to uh, react to it better because your brain is stronger, if you will, your muscle is stronger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm not going out very far on a limb to suggest that neither of you would recommend jumping on this with an Ativan prescription. I think you'd uh, certainly prefer, prefer the methods that you've been describing. And most yeah, of I, mean, I, I mean, I think, go ahead, sorry. I was say, you know, so many of our patients have polypharmacy, so they're on antidepressants and opioids. And so if we could do something to not even eliminate the Ativan, but maybe be able to use less of it. I think that it, you know, can only benefit the patient. Mm -hmm. I agree. But particularly when you look at the drug interaction between opioids and the gabapentinoids and the benzodiazepines and the risk yep. of sudden death, that'll take care of their stress right there, won't it? So not a good look. No interactions between meditation and Ativan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But then we, we like keep adding these pills and then we always chase the side effects with more pills. So at some point, just like Carly said, the polypharmacy in itself decreases the patient's quality of life, which is the opposite of what we're trying to do in the first place. So, Well, speaking as a pharmacist who's very into deep prescribing, I feel like I'm in good company here. There you go. So this all sounds awesome, but what are some barriers that you see in integrating lifestyle medicine and palliative care aside from what you already mentioned, which is picking up the patient days before they die? What other barriers exist? Um, yeah, so um, barriers, again, as Simran said, late consults. Uh, most of the patients that Simran and I see, you know, we're doing all inpatient. Um, where I work especially, you know, and, and Simran too, you know, palliative care is, is so misunderstood. We're synonymous to hospice for most people, including many medical providers. So we're getting consulted so, so late. And that's a huge barrier. As you said, you know, if somebody, somebody is on their deathbed, are they really going to want to change their lifestyle or have the tools to change their lifestyle when they have so, so much going on? 
Um, you know, the standard American diet in and of itself is a huge barrier. Um, it's calorically dense, nutritionally deplete, high in fats, cholesterol, refined sugars, and it's everywhere. You know, that's such a huge barrier. It's in our face. It's in the grocery store. It's on TV. And everybody around us eats that way too. Um, it's no fault of the patients. Um, it's just, it's so hard to change when you're surrounded by the thing you're trying to change. Just like somebody trying to become sober from opioid abuse or alcohol, you can't possibly change if you're surrounded by that substance. So I think that's a big, um, a big barrier for a lot of our patients. Um, we hear from many that finances are a barrier. Um, you'll hear Simran and I kind of argue against that. Um, it's actually very inexpensive to eat well. You just have to know how to do it. And I think most people just don't have the, the education, not education, but they aren't given the tools or the knowledge to know the difference. You know, a bag of beans costs 99 cents. Um, whereas a, a 12 pack of chicken breast may cost upwards of 15, $16. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you only know how to eat that way, you don't even think of the 99 cent bag of beans. Right. Um, so I think just knowledge is a barrier just as it is with anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's for the general population. I think that again, that goes back to the medical providers as well. I mean, I, I remember when I was a resident in a primary care clinic and my patient would come in with high blood pressure, he'd be like, okay, doc, so you want me to change my diet? What should I do? Right. And it would right. always be like, mm, eat low fat and don't eat sodium. And, right. um, it was always like, there was no clear direction. And so six months later, they come back. And of course, their blood pressure is the exact same. So now it's time to get out the prescription pad. So I think it has to go even just like this. And this is why we love lifestyle medicine. So it's just like palliative care. It goes all the way back to med school. Like this is something that needs to be taught much earlier on. Yeah, we're the barriers for a lot of patients because majority of clinicians, like Simran said, aren't given the knowledge themselves to educate patients. Right. Now, I, I did primary care before I did palliative care. And I would routinely check um, cholesterol levels and A1C on patients. And a lot of the times they came back elevated. And what did I tell them to do? Cut back on your sugar, cut back on your fat intake. But I myself didn't necessarily even know what that meant. And I was going home and eating cheese pizza on Tuesday nights because why else? I'm young, I'm healthy, I can do that. But that wasn't the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, going back to the late consults, it's, that's just a huge barrier. Um, fortunately, with the new, newer ASCO guidelines saying that we should be consulted on at diagnosis of advanced stage cancer, um, hopefully we'd be able to capture patients at that point. Um, will we be able to reverse their cancer? Maybe not. Um, there, it has you know, there are cases where people have reversed their cancer. Um, if you look into the Radical Remission Project, that's a, a whole different book and conversation. Um, but I think if we can get people as early as possible, um, that would solve a lot of problems. Um, and it also takes a discipline, just or multi-disciplines, just like palliative care. It, it's not an NP alone. It's not a physician alone. You need 
dietitians and even counselors in some cases and physical therapists, you know, it really takes a team just like palliative care. So you both made the point that it's unfortunate that most healthcare practitioners today don't understand this body of knowledge themselves. So we can't send them all back to pharmacy, nursing, medical school. So what can we, you do to educate the cohort of practitioners who are out there? Because this is really confusing for patients. Yeah. And that's where it becomes challenging, right? It's like, just like goals of care. You know, if we go in there and we're saying something to the family, but they haven't heard it from the medical team or the oncologist, then the family's like, wait, what are you like, this is the first time I'm hearing this. It's the same thing when we go in there and we see a cancer patient eating, you know, candy and drinking Coke, and we start try talking to them about why those things are not, you know, helpful for their disease state. And they're like, well, my oncologist told me I can keep my diet the way it is. It doesn't really matter. So if we're not all giving the same message, you're right. It's going to confuse patients. And so, again, this is a slow path, but I think looking at the bigger picture of America and the epidemic of really chronic disease in this country, starting at a younger age as the years are going by, I think all physicians and clinicians in general are going to have to start learning about how to treat these root causes of disease, which again, are all lifestyle factors. So one of the big things, um, and in DC, this is soon going to be a thing where at least physicians in particular every year are going to have to have um, CMEs in, uh, for nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Um, they actually have a website, and I think it's called nutritioncme.com, where you can literally go online and just watch nutrition videos and get free CME for them. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of resources. Um, as I mentioned, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine um, is a great resource uh, for clinicians to go and um, get um, information. There's tons of conferences every year on nutrition, on lifestyle medicine. And so it's, it's definitely accessible information. And they actually, um, I think recently came out with programs des- um, to be integrated within residency programs. So mm-hmm. um, a, a residency director, I'm assuming Simran might know more about this than I, would reach out to ACLM and it's all on their website. And they can, it's, I don't even think you have to purchase it. It's free to be integrated within a residency program. So the information is out there. We just need people to know that it is out there in the first place and how to access it. Well, I think you ladies should put on your to-do list to write a book on lifestyle medicine for practicing clinicians. So can you put that on the list for me? Well, I mean, I think we should, because the crazy part is this, like you look at most healthcare practitioners in most hospitals and you know, most of us are unhealthy, right? And when we learn, at least particular for me, for my husband, and Carly's experienced the same thing, and this has rippled into my family as well. And as we've learned all of these things about lifestyle medicine and the, the benefits of uh, behavior change over the last five years, like we've become happier people, we've become healthier people. And, and the biggest example that you can set for your patient is yourself. If they see you, they're more, and you tell them to do something, they're more likely to do it. Mm-hmm. They see your attitude and, you know, how you look and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and physicians in particular, I can speak for, you know, we have extremely high rates of suicide, extremely high rates of burnout, substance abuse. Um, and so, you know, the stress of, of being a physician in this country is really hard. And, you know, we, 
and, and how we combat that is by binge eating our favorite foods, binge watching TV, not exercising, risky substances. So I think lifestyle medicine actually could be life-changing for the clinician themselves, even before it transcends to the patient. I agree. I remember very clearly as a brand new nurse working in Charles Village at Union Memorial, and I would have a bad day. I'd be there 12 hours, and I would literally drive down to Char Charles Village right after work, go to Cold Stone, get the largest ice cream they had, and sit in my car and cry over my day and eat the ice cream. Mm. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, I've come a long way, and I, I don't think I'm alone. You know, there's a lot of nurses, there's a lot of medical professionals that probably do the same. Mm -hmm. Especially for palliative care. I mean, the, yeah. the work we do is extremely emotionally challenging. And um, so I, I think this is where this, this really is important. Yeah. And, you know, I think what's also important is I don't care if you're an MD, PhD, if you're not familiar with this, um, and I, Simran, I know you're good at doing this because you and I have spoken before, is what are some simple steps that you can take to try and start to turn the ship and not just go from you know, Domino's and McDonald's and a Twinkie to red beans and rice for the rest of your life overnight. That's just not going to work. So nope. I do think baby steps. Yeah. Another question I have is, as you're talking to patients, many times family members are sitting there listening to this. Do you ever have caregivers, informal caregivers, family members say, I'm kind of interested in that too. Do they also benefit from these conversations in your opinion? Yeah, I, I would think so. Um, you know, a lot of times those caregivers are the caregivers for people with irreversible, incurable disease. And just as so the patient told. wants to stay there forever. I said, or so they're told. Or so they're told. Um, and you know, just as the patients want to stay around forever, their loved ones want them around forever. So they get to this point of desperation where they're, they're also saying, I will do anything possible to keep mom, dad, brother, sister around as long as possible. Tell me what I can do to change that. So they're very engaged and invested in knowing how they can help to keep mom around a little bit longer. So I think that is a, definitely a motivating factor to, to getting people on board and it rubs off on them. Um, it's hard for me to give any examples because working inpatient, we don't see them through the course to know, are they actually going home and doing what we told them to do? I don't know. Um, but they definitely get a little bit of excitement in their eyes when they hear, yes, there's actually something I can do to help myself and my loved one. And they're the tribe. They're the tribe, right? So they're probably the ones at home that are cooking. They're probably the ones at home that are helping with physical therapy. Um, you know, so they're probably the ones that are consoling them when they're having a panic attack. So they're actually almost more important to talk to than the patient themselves, because if you arm them with the art artillery, like they're going to go home and do those things because the patient, you know, may not, they're already so overwhelmed with everything they receive um, in the inpatient setting, which is also why this is very difficult um, to do um, in the inpatient setting. But I, I think lifestyle medicine and positive uh, behavior change in general, regardless of whether you're talking about patient and family or colleagues or within, you know, husband and wife, like when one person starts to make positive changes, it tends to be a ripple effect on the other person. Um, because when someone's feeling good, they have a lot of energy, they're doing like all this stuff, you want to know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's, I, I think, regardless of who's listening, it's something that no doubt as humans, it's going to benefit all of us if we want to live a long, healthy, happy life. And, and there's 
there are communities around the world that thrive like this. Have you ever heard of the, have you heard of the Blue Zones, Lynn? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, these are people, living day examples of, of these behavior changes that we're talking about. They eat predominantly a whole food plant-based diet. Um, they have very limited substance use. If so, it's like a glass of wine. Um, they move, so they don't go to the gym and get on a treadmill for an hour. They move, they walk, and they, you know, they do just move their body. Um, they do a lot of stress management, basic relaxation techniques. And the biggest thing is they're so big on community and spirituality. Their community is everything and they have a purpose in life. And so, you know, if we look at these communities in, per in particular, you know, they have, you know, the highest prevalence of centenarians. So the question is why, what are they doing different than the rest of the world? Mm -hmm. I heard that yams rule in those blue zones. Oh yes, sweet potatoes are <laughs> sweet potatoes are life. They yeah. they're everything. <laughs> so, ladies, if you had a crystal ball and you could say, "Yep, this is what I see for the future." I'm is uh, uh, maybe an outpatient clinic and lifestyle medicine in your future. If it was the world according to you, what's on your wish list? I, I mean, I think just to go back to kind of the for us. There's so many uh, commonalities between palliative care and lifestyle medicine, and which is why we're so passionate about both fields. They focus on the whole person. Um, it's a team approach. You work in combination with conventional treatment. Um, you meet patients and families where they're at with the ultimate goal of, of improving quality of life. Um, but you know, like we said earlier, it's really hard to do that in the inpatient setting when we're getting consulted, you know, when patients are really near the end of life. Um, and so I, I think what we are hopeful for is that we eventually branch out into the outpatient setting now with telemedicine, thank you COVID. Um, I think the potential is enormous um, because we'll be able to reach even more, as long as it sticks around, we'll be able to reach even more patients than before. Um, and I've you know, when I was at Hopkins and we did outpatient palliative care, our, our mocho rate was like 50 to 60% um, because these patients are often just too sick to come into the clinic. And so if we had telemedicine, I think it would be, it would do wonders. Um, the other, the other piece of it, of course, is I, I think before we can do all of that, I think we have to continue to educate on what is lifestyle medicine, what is the difference between palliative care and hospice so that we can actually see these patients much earlier. Because even if we do telemedicine, if you know the patients in the last days to weeks of life, we're not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to do this. Um, but like Carly said, you know, patients and families, they they're hungry at, at this point when they're diagnosed with a serious illness, they're hungry to know what they can do at home um, mm -hmm. after losing all of this control when they're diagnosed. Um, and so I think the basics of, you know, the food they put in their body, the way they move, maintaining their relationships are all things that they can control. For the most part, of course, apart from buying food, they're free, um, but they need education and coaching. And that's where we hope to provide that. Um, and, and Carly said that too. Most of them, especially our younger patients, are willing to fight. They're willing to do anything, as they say, to stay alive. Um, and so these are simple techniques that I think they would benefit from. Um, Carly, anything you want to add to that list? Yeah, no, I, I would echo everything Simran said. Um, in a perfect world, I would be working in a clinic that meshes both lifestyle and palliative. I, I'm not hoping to lean more towards one than the other. I, I really think that they're both important 
in combination and synergy. Um, that, you know, in my dream world, I, I've told our leadership all the time, you know, when I do outpatient, I don't want it to be this rinky-dink clinic. I want the real deal. You know, I want physical therapists and yoga classes and nutrition classes. And so, you know, I, I'm a big dreamer. I have big goals. Um, I think part of our barriers may be reaching past healthcare leadership to help them understand the value of doing these things, to provide the resources to fund such a clinic. Um, but I think it'll happen one day. Um, and I, I look forward to when it does. Mm -hmm. There is one more thing, though. Um, one of our colleagues in the South, um, um, in MedStar South, is, is doing community culinary cooking classes. And mm -hmm. this, I think, would be more for patients with, you know, not like serious, I mean, not end-stage disease, more so for um, families as well, where they come in um, to the hospitals in DC and she basically does uh, culinary cooking classes with them. So not only does she empower them with the nutritional information, like why is this good for your disease, but also the culinary or cooking skills to help them cook at home, which there's so much evidence to support cooking at home is much healthier than, than eating out. And you know, that's been my husband and I, that's our biggest observation with COVID and staying at home is how much money we have saved yeah. By eating at that home. Too. Oh my God, goodness, we, um, it's been astounding. Well, I'm going to put in a bid that when you guys take your board exam in November, I think you should start a podcast series on lifestyle medicine for healthcare <laughs> practitioners. So we I'm would adding love to that do that. Too. We would love to do that. Besides our jobs and both our ki two kids each under like four, we're going we're gonna to find the time. <laughs> well, I would say sleep is for suckers, but that's pillar number five. You'd probably spend <laughs> for that. So we I still aim for seven hours. We do. We still aim for seven hours. Okay. <laughs> we're past the newborn stage, so we're good. <laughs> Ladies, this has been very illuminating. Are there any final thoughts, any toe-cone points you want to share with our listeners? Uh, no, I think we, we covered it pretty well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and I'd like to thank our guests for today and talking about lifestyle medicine. Very, very interesting. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.